May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I want to talk to you today about that great miracle that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000 with these great miracles. He calls them signs. And you see that in the reading in verse 14, when the people saw this sign, the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And what John does in his gospel is he structures his gospel around the signs that Jesus performed. And then, after the sign, there's a teaching to explain the significance. Jesus gives a teaching to explain the significance of the sign. And there are at least six, there are six undisputed signs in the Gospel of John. And then after that, scholars argue with each other, is there seven, is there eight? But there's six undisputed signs in the Gospel of John. And this is one of those great signs that John points to. Now... In thinking about a sign, what is the purpose of a sign? The important thing about the sign is, is not the sign itself so much as so much as what the sign wants to convey. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to, to talk about signs. I thought about this because my uh, daughter has just recently taken her permit test. Maybe a refresher on road signs. So what does sign number one there on the, on the your, le your left-hand sign mean? You're coming up to an intersection, a, a, a four-way intersection, a crossing. That's, that's pretty easy. Number two, I had to think about this. Number two? A divided highway. Okay, it's coming up. Okay, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence with the next one, but go ahead and show the next one. Okay. But the funny thing about that is on the permit test, it's actually multiple choice. So you have... What does this sign mean? What should you do if you see this sign? Slow down to more than 50 miles per hour because the school is up ahead. Or B, keep driving to see if the road is actually closed. <laughs> I think that's probably what a lot of people are tempted to do. Or C, look for detours and be prepared to turn. C, C is the right answer. Okay, you can take that away. But sign, signs communicate meaning, and they convey important information. So I want to look at what these, this sign here communicates about Jesus, because that's really what these signs are about. It's telling us something significant about Jesus Christ. And there's layers of meaning behind these miracles. So we're going to look at the three things that this sign tells us. And the first is that Jesus is compassionate. It speaks to Jesus' compassion. And the second thing that I see here is that Jesus calls for his disciples to cooperate with him in ministering to other people. And then he blesses that cooperation. And then the third thing, that the most important meaning of this sign is it tells us that Jesus is the life-giving Messiah, that he's the life-giving Christ. He offers eternal life. It points to the core of who he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah who is life-giving. Okay, but let's look at that first point here. Um, this sign tells us that Jesus is compassionate. Compassion is one of the motivations behind this sign that Jesus performs, the feeding of the 5,000. Every gospel reports this great miracle. All four gospels have the feeding of the 5,000. 
And so you get different perspectives depending on the, the gospel that you read. But Mark tells us this about, just before this happened in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, it says this about Jesus. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. See, a great crowd was coming because, as John tells us, this was Passover season. So in this region of Israel, people would come flood in by the thousands because of the festival of Passover. And so Jesus, Mark 6, 34, says, he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them, and that's what he was doing all day, was teaching them, and that's part of his compassionate response to people who are like sheep without a shepherd. They need direction, they need teaching, they need to know who God is. And so he teaches them. That's a compassionate response, is to teach the crowds. And then he feeds them out of compassion. A little bit later on in the Gospel of Mark, he feeds 4,000 people. There's another feeding miracle that takes place with seven loaves. And there Mark says explicitly, Jesus said this, he said, I have, here's the word, compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days. I mean, people hungered for Jesus' teaching and they were willing to listen to him and, and come and, and hear him for days. But he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And then he performed that feeding miracle. So behind this miracle, we see the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. The Greek word for compassion, is, it's kind of a fun Greek word to say. It's splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. Which means being moved from your intestines. Being moved from your entrails. Being moved deep within. Moved to pity. Moved to love because they believe that that was the seat of pity and love was something deep within you. And even today we talk about being moved deeply within or something hitting us right in the gut. And so when Jesus saw the need of the people, when he saw their hunger, it was an instinctive thing to move towards compassion and to perform this great miracle. And the point I want to make here is that the same Christ who felt compassion for this crowd 2,000 years ago and performed this great miracle is the same God we serve today. That Jesus is a God of compassion. And he is moved to act compassionately towards us so that when we come to him in prayer with our needs, with our hunger, we can trust that Jesus hears us and he will act compassionately and he will do what's best for us out of compassion. Maybe not always the answer that we want, but we can trust that he is compassionate and he has our best interest in mind and that he will answer according to his kindness, according to his compassion. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you can trust as you turn to Christ in prayer that you're turning to a compassionate Lord. The second thing that I see in this miracle is that Jesus calls us as his followers to cooperate with him in this ministry, in blessing other people. In verse 5, it says that Jesus lifted his eyes and he sees this large crowd that was coming towards him. And then Jesus said to Philip, perhaps with a twinkle in his eye, what are we going to do here, Philip? Where should we go to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, John tells us, to test Philip, 
for he himself knew what he was going to do. And then Philip answered him and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. This is impossible. And I did the, the calculation here. A, a denarii was a day's worth of labor, a wage, a wage, uh, a, a day's wage uh, uh, for labor. And so if you do the calculation, uh, that's about, given the average salary in our area, about $36,000 in today's term. So Philip is saying, even if I had $36,000 in cash, we wouldn't be able to give enough bread to feed just a little bit, to give them just a little bit. And so this seems like an impossible task. And then Andrew comes up to Jesus, and you can almost sense that Andrew, you can imagine Andrew's probably even embarrassed to bring this up because this doesn't seem like it's, it's significant at all, but Andrew says, there is a little boy here, got five loaves and two fish, but you know, that's nothing, right? What could we do with that, right, Jesus? And then Jesus says, okay, we, I've got a plan. And he gets the disciples involved with the plan. And again, you read the other perspectives, the other Gospels, and you can see how Jesus, he got the disciples to organize people in groups. And then it says here in John that he distributed the, the fish and the loaves, but actually what he did is he distributed them through his disciples. He gave his disciples the, the, the bread and the fish so that they could pass out this, um, this food. And it seemed impossible what they were doing, but it was happening as they handed out the loaves and fish. It wasn't running out. People were eating their fill. And then he says, I want you now to take these baskets that are the leftovers. And they gathered up 12 baskets. A significant detail here. Every gospel mentions the 12 baskets because they're just astounded that there's 12 baskets left over. What a mighty miracle Jesus performed. But he's getting his disciples involved. Why? He's wanting to teach them something. He's wanting to teach them that you bring me what you have, and I can bless it, and I can multiply it, and I can do beyond what you could ask or imagine with my blessing. And, and, and that's a lesson they need to know as they continue to follow Jesus. And that's a lesson that we need to learn today as well. You know, some people try to take the miracle out of this miracle. And you know how they do this? Sometimes even preachers will twist this message and they'll say, this is not a miracle of multiplication. It just seems so far-fetched. They say this is a miracle of sharing. People came to this feast. They came to hear Jesus teach, rather, and they saw the little boy with his loaves of bread and fish, and then they started to take out their food that they had been hiding in their cloaks. They all got inspired to, to share together. And this, so this is a, a miracle of sharing, not a miracle of multiplication. But, of course, that makes no sense. <laughs> to the story, the, the, the reason the story is in here. The reason you have that detail that they filled 12 baskets with fragments from what? Not from the crowd, but from these, these five barley loaves is because this was a mighty miracle, a supernatural act of the incarnate Son of God. And so this is, this is a mighty miracle, and it was really no problem for uh, for Christ to, to do this. No problem for the incarnate Son of God. C.S. Lewis has this book called Miracles. It's a, sm it's a small book, but it's really dense. It's a very good study on miracles from a logical point of view. And he says in this book that if you believe that God is the creator of all things, 
If God created the natural world and, and is behind nature's law, then it's no problem for God to periodically intervene when it is suited to his purposes. He can intervene and do these miraculous things. And, and Lewis calls this miracle a miracle of the old creation. He makes a distinction between miracles of the new creation, like resurrection miracles, that foreshadows what God is going to do in the future. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's the biggest sign, the, the, the culminating sign here, Jesus' miracle in the Gospel of John. It's a foreshadowing of the resurrection, the miracle of the new creation, a sign of the new creation. But, a, but C.S. Lewis says a miracle like this is a, is a miracle of the old creation, and that just reproduces what God is already doing. God is already doing these things on a, on a larger, slower scale. And what Jesus does is he just speeds it up. So, for example, go ahead and show this, this slide. I'm glad I got slides today, so you'll look at the slides and not the snow and be worried about what's happening. So, I don't normally have slides, but today I was inspired to do this, and I'm glad. So, here's, here's what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, Every year, God makes a little corn into much corn, because God is the designer of this world. He's behind it. Every year, God makes a little corn into much corn. The seed is sown, and there is an increase. On this day, the feeding of the 5,000, the incarnate God does the same. He turns a little into a lot, but he does it up close, under human hands, a workman's hands. He turns a little bread into a lot of bread. It's what God has been doing, but now it's up close, personal. And they see the Son of God doing this right before their eyes. What an amazing miracle. But the point is that Jesus wants his disciples to get in on this. He wants them to participate. He wants them to see what he can do if only they will bring what they have. And so that's an important lesson for us. God calls us to reach other people with the gospel. How are we going to do that? What resources do we have to bear? God calls us as a church to help this church grow and to reach out. How are we going to do that? In our own strength, we really can't. But if we give God an opportunity, if we bring God what we have, he can bless it, Christ can bless it, and he can multiply it, and then he can do beyond what we can imagine. And we have to believe that, that it's through Christ's blessing and his power that we can do these things for his glory. One of my, my favorite stories about this, and I've told this story before, but I like to, I asked Josie, I said, how many times do I, have I told this story, you know, before I, I said, do I say it at once a year? She said, no, about once every three years. So I said, okay, I can, I can do that then. Once every three years, I'm going to tell the story of my father-in-law when he uh, retired from being a union electrician in Chicago. He began to pray, God, how can you use me to reach other people? And he, um, every day, would drive past an apartment complex, and there were Hispanic children that would play in this apartment complex, and they would play in the common ground area, in the grass there, with a soccer ball after school. And he began to drive past there, and, and he, he was praying about, God, how, how can I do something for you? How can I reach the lost? And God said, well, what about these children? He started to feel God was saying, do something for these children. Now here's Bob, he's a union electrician. He's never taken Spanish. These children all speak Spanish, not English. But this burden was upon him. So what does he do? He gets a Spanish phrase book. He gets a soccer ball. He gets a bag full of candy. And he 
recruits his wife <laughs> and says, you're coming with me. And he uh, went out there and some other family members and said, I'd like to give you some candy and meet your parents and, and play soccer with you. And I'd like to tell you some stories, some stories about God. Every Friday night, he began to do that. And then it, then it grew. People in his church began to come along. He began to recruit. He, he, feel, he realized very soon he was in over his head. And he got some Spanish speakers. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And today, by that apartment complex, is a church for Hispanic-speaking children and people. I'm going to show you a picture of that. There's a, a picture of... That's the inside of the church. And he helped to to wire that up because, again, he's an electrician. He helped to get that ready for the church. There's pictures of, of the kids. But he just brought his five loaves and two fish. And he said, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to make myself available. And the Lord blessed it, and the Lord grew it. And I think this is just a great, great legacy. You can, you can take that down. But in our own life, as we, again, think about reaching our children for this culture, God, what can I do? Or our grandchildren, or, or seeing people in the community come to Christ. And we can say, honestly, we don't have the resources. Maybe the Lord is just saying, do what you can do, and bring it to me, and trust me, and I can do something beyond what you can ask or imagine. He calls us to cooperate with them. And then the, the, the third thing that we see here that this miracle teaches us about Jesus, and this is really the highest level of, of meaning here. This is the important point, is Jesus is saying to these people, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. He performs this miracle. And during this time period, there were Jews who really believed that God was going to perform a, a miracle like he did in the days of Moses, that manna was going to come from heaven, and God was going to raise up a Moses-like prophet. You can see this in some of the texts, early texts, first century texts in Judaism. They talk about in the days of the Messiah, God is going to give us manna again. And so here is Jesus, not in a desert, but in a desolate place, miraculously feeding the people of Israel. And he's proclaiming to them, I am your Messiah. I am your leader. I am your Savior and the Savior of the world. Now, there's a disconnect, isn't there, between what Jesus is wanting to teach them and what they receive. I mean, they understand in verse 14 that he's a prophet, but they don't know that he's more than a prophet. He's the very Son of God. And then verse 15, they, 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 they want to take him by force to make him a king. But then you learn a little bit later on that he's not the kind of king they want because they come to him the next day and they say, that was a wonderful miracle. Could you do that again and again and again? like Moses did in the desert. We want to see you rain down manna from heaven every day for 40 years. And then we'll believe. <laughs> and then we'll believe. Even though they had seen this great miracle, see, they were hung up on what they could get from Jesus at the physical level. But Jesus says, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and I can give you bread that will endure forever. This is later on in chapter 6. The manna that your fathers ate, from uh, it was from heaven, but they perished. But the bread that I can give you is the bread of eternal life, he said. I am the bread of life. This is verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Is my flesh. And so he's pointing to his death on the cross, and he's saying, through my death, through my sacrifice, as you trust in me and my death, then you will have eternal life. As you eat that, as you take that in to your life, take me into your life, I will connect you to the life of God, which is eternal. And I will raise you up on the last day. And Jesus says that throughout the Gospel of John. If you believe in me, those who believe in me, I will raise up on the last day. The hope of resurrection, the greatest gift of all. The hope of eternal life, the greatest gift of all. So much greater than physical bread is this bread of eternal life. Burton Russell said this, the atheist, 20th century atheist. And he's, he, according to his philosophy, he, he basically says in this quote, there is no hope for individual life beyond the grave, and there's no hope for ultimate meaning on atheism. So here's what he says. He says, no heroism, no intensity of thought or feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. doesn't matter how heroic you are, how intense you are. Burton Russell says, according to atheism, there's no hope for you beyond the grave. And then he goes on, he says, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the death of the universe. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of a universe in ruins. Death dooms every individual and renders human achievement ultimately meaningless. No matter what achievement society may make, no matter how advanced society may make, no matter how much of a genius you might be, Russell is saying, death ends it all at an individual level, and the universe eventually is going to die. Unless, now here's my, unless, the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ is true. And he is. And he offers this hope that no one else can give the greatest gift, the bread of life himself. His death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, his resurrection for new life. So this, this, this meal and what Jesus talks about here, this feast of five loaves and two fish, and then the discourse that follows, that meal really points to Jesus' last meal at the Eucharist, where he talks about this is, this is my body, this is my blood. And as we come to the Eucharist each Sunday, we are remembering and we are giving thanks for this great gift that we cannot get anywhere else this gift of eternal life in Christ the Messiah. And we reaffirm our faith in His sacrifice and His resurrection, and we commune with Him at that meal. So, brothers and sisters, what, what are you hungry for this morning? The material things that the world provides are nice, but they're not enough. They can't satisfy us at this deep level. They can't offer eternal life. What do you need to hear Jesus telling you this morning through this miracle? Do you need to hear him say, I am a God of compassion, you can trust me to hear and answer compassionately? Do you need to hear Jesus calling you to get involved, to cooperate, to do what you can do, to bring whatever resources you have to him? 
so that he can bless it and use it for his glory in ways that you can't imagine? Do you need to be reminded this morning of the eternal life and be grateful once again for the eternal life that only he can give, the bread of life? Amen. Gracious God, we are thankful, Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your mighty works and these great things that you did and that have been preserved for us to teach us about who you are, to draw us to you, and to call us to deeper trust in you. Please, Lord Christ, work faith into our hearts and minds at a deep level so that we will trust what you are offering to us, this bread of life, and take this into our life and be transformed. And then offer that to others. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's stand.